our scripture text this morning comes from Acts 26. And before I read the text, I just want to give you a little bit of context because it sort of jumps in the middle of, of, um, of events that are happening. Uh, Paul uh, has been arrested in Jerusalem um, at um, the request of the Jews. He was actually arrested and um, he was almost uh, ripped apart by a mob in the temple and the Romans intervened and arrested him. And he's been in custody for about two or three years, uh, kind of making his way up the legal system of the Roman bureaucracy. And here he finds himself uh, before King Agrippa and King Agrippa's sister slash maybe wife, we're not sure, um, to hear again. And Agrippa is a Jew, uh, but he's kind of a pagan Jew. He's, he's, he belongs to the family of Herod, the same family that, that uh, sought to kill the baby Jesus. And so that's sort of his lineage. And so our scripture this reading uh, begins sort of right, uh, right as Paul is to address and give an opportunity to, to speak to and make his case for King Agrippa, to, defending his life and ministry. So hear God's word to us. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known to, by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twi 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it, that, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Therefore, King, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, so that I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, we pray you give us... um, a similar vision that you gave Paul of the heavenly Christ that would give us a frame and a perspective on our lives and on our ministry um, and on your work in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a, a lot of soul searching happening in the church and churches these days. You know, what does it mean to be the church? What is our purpose in the world? The past five years especially uh, have been very challenging uh, time for the church in America. We are living in one of the most divisive political environments of recent history, and all that division sort of has seeped into the life of the church and become manifest there. Uh, It's been barely, uh, it's been now two years plus of the COVID-19 pandemic, (laughs) which has, uh, when it happened, basically shut down and upended our lives as we know it and turned everything upside down. And uh, thankfully, we are coming out of that, but it changed so many different things of how we relate to one another. In the church, there's been, in the past two or three years especially, but not exclusively, uh, many revelations of of spiritual leaders and pastors who have abused their power and their authority in the church. There's been um, sex abuse in the church and the cover-up of it in systematic ways. Um, When you step back and you look at the broad demographics of... uh, Christian belief and affiliation in the United States, in the United States, what you see is, you know, across the board, there seems to be broad, sort of consistent decline in church membership, a decline in those who profess belief in God and especially in Christian faith. And again, this leads to all this sort of turmoil. It seems like Christianity in America and the church in America has an increasingly diminished place and role. Um, as the culture becomes more secular. And so many people see the church as the problem, and the church is failing. Uh, The church is outdated. And again, this leads to um, a lot of soul-searching. What does it mean to be the church? What is our purpose in the world? What is our mission and vision? When I read the story of Paul's defense of his life and his ministry before King Agrippa, I was struck by his account and his theological vision. Now, if you read this story, 
of, that we just heard read, and you, you, you know, without the 2,000 years of you know, hindsight to know how the story ends, it would be easy to think that we're in this moment where Christianity has barely gotten off the ground and it could already be snuffed out. Paul's whole ministry, when you look at it, is filled with, yes, success in different ways, but lots of defeat, lots of rejection. Uh, you know, Paul is chased out of multiple towns. He is beaten. He, die, he almost dies on multiple occasions from mob violence. He's been under arrest now for two or three years, and he's been under, in Roman custody getting passed around to different regions. And there's been two failed assassination attempts on his life while he's in, in, under Roman custody. And he uh, is sort of in this appellate sort of situation of his court case, just keep getting referred up and up to uh, higher and higher dignitaries uh, within the Roman government. And so now he, he is here again, um, standing before another sort of judicial body and tribunal to defend his life and his ministry. And I was really struck by how he concludes the account of his life and ministry. He says, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul was driven in his ministry by a heavenly vision. This morning I want us to reflect on what would it mean for us to not be disobedient to a heavenly vision? Uh, what would it mean for us to have a heavenly vision? Uh, I think there are many challenges that face the church today that are very real and significant, that have not always been as acute or severe as they are today. But I would say that the biggest challenge of the church today is a crisis of theological vision, that our biggest problem is a theological problem. It's a problem of being able to see God. It's hard for us to sense the reality of God, the realness of God, where God is at, how he is working. And I think it's very easy for us when bad things happen, as has happened to us as a congregation and many other churches over the past two to three years, to become discouraged and despondent about the future of the church. As I argued in a sermon about a month ago on Stephen and the vision of Stephen from Acts 7, uh, when we as individuals and as corporate body are overcome by anxiety, the first thing to go is imagination. Because anxiety kills imagination. That's how it works. When we become anxious and fearful as we look at the events of history or the events of our lives or the circumstances, we sort of we become anxious and we can no longer imagine we become stuck, and we lose vision, theological vision. What is a theological vision? A theological vision is an imagination for God, for how God is really, truly present in our lives and at work, and he is bringing all of history to its fulfillment and conclusion in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have a sense of theological vision. And so today, I want us to consider what that would look like for us as a congregation to cultivate theological vision. And I think this visioning process 
is not some sort of unique uh, occupation we do seasonally when you know, we feel like we've got mission drift or we've lost our way, but actually the, the process of theological visioning is part of our daily, weekly calling as God's people to exercise and live out our faith in this world as God has called us. So there's three things I want to focus on this morning from this story that I think we learned from Paul about what it means to cultivate theological vision. So I want to give them to you uh, up front, and then we'll talk about them. So the first, the first thing about cultivating theological vision is that we need to behold the glory of the heavenly Christ. Behold the glory of the heavenly Christ. The second one is we need to embrace the church as his body, Christ's body. And the third is we must continually proclaim the gospel to ourselves and to the world. Right? So those are, those are three points. I'll repeat them when I get to each one of them. So the first is beholding the glory of the heavenly Christ. One of the recurring themes you see throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, is the way that calling and commission of prophets and apostles um, always flows from an experience of a vision of God and his glory. That mission or commissioning and calling is the subsequent sort of response of the prophet or of the person to having seen God and experienced God in his glory. Our sacred reading is a great example of this, perhaps one of the most famous in the Old Testament, where Isaiah uh, is caught up and he has this vision of God exalted in the throne room of heaven. He sees God with all his glory and he is utterly overwhelmed and in a sense undone by this. But the conclusion of that story is mission. <laughs> That's the conclusion of that story. After uh, God sort of makes it right and sets, sets uh, Isaiah upright, he says, who will go? And Isaiah says, I will go. And what you need to understand about that mission is that actually it was a call to a mission in which Isaiah was called to speak words and truths that would be rejected. And God says this up front, says, I'm, I want you to go and preach a message that's going to be rejected. <laughs> How is that for a mission call, right? I want you to go and do something, and nobody's going to listen to you, but I want you to go and do it anyways. And Isaiah was obedient to the heavenly vision. This, of course, is a repeated pattern. You see this with Moses in the burning bush, right? God encounters Moses in the burning bush, and he says, I want you to go and lead my people. See this with Jeremiah, with Ezekiel, with Paul, again and again, they have a vision of the glory of God, strange, overwhelming, and God sends them on a mission. In almost all cases, the mission involves great suffering, rejection, and then in many cases, actually death. And yet, the prophets and the apostles respond in obedience because the glory, the glory of the heavenly vision outweighs the dangers and the difficulties of the mission to which they are called. This is just so, so important that the glory of the heavenly vision far outweighs all the dangers and the difficulties of the mission itself. Paul shares his heavenly vision, which is really the story of his conversion. It's helpful to recall a little bit of that. Paul used to hate Christians. He hated them. He hated them so much that he was commissioned by the Jewish leaders the, the, to actually seek them out. 
and imprison them. He was like, you know, the, um, in World War II, after World War II, when many Nazis immigrated to like Argentina and Chile, the, the, um, the Israeli government had people that would seek out defectors or people who had fled Germany. They would seek them out and arrest them and bring them back for trial in Israel. That's kind of like what Paul did. He would seek these Christians out to persecute them, to, to sort of suss them out. And in many cases, it ended with their death. Paul, this was who Paul was until he had an encounter with the glory of the heavenly Christ that literally knocks him off his horse. He's on a horse on another mission uh, to find and persecute Christians. And Jesus comes in his glory with a group of Paul's companions, and Paul is knocked off his horse, and the light is so bright that it temporarily blinds him. And Jesus says to him shortly after he encounters him this, but rise, and this is from our, our text, verse 16, rise and stand upon your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me. Again, Paul encounters a vision of the glory of Christ and then is given a mission. And this heavenly vision for Paul wasn't just a private vision he had uh, on his bed, in his bed, or on a mountainside. There's, there's something that's so important about this story is that um, there were others there with him. It's something that really happened that others can testify to. They saw the light and they heard the voice, even though they couldn't understand the words. This is not a private revelation. And this experience of Paul's becomes the central to his, his narrative, his sense of self, what drives him as a person. Uh, there are three different accounts of this story in the book of Acts, right? One is the one that Luke tells, and then Paul repeats the story two different times, this is one of them, in which he testifies to his ministry. And you can imagine how many times he told this story, hundreds, thousands of times. This is what happened to me. And Luke, Luke intends for us, as we read the story about Paul, um, to understand that Paul's not just an example of an individual Christian responding to God's call, but that Paul is a model. He's a model for the church, of what it means to be the church in the world. That the church as a whole, as a corporate body, must live from a heavenly vision of the ascended Christ. This is a calling not just for individual um, pastors or missionaries or people with great missions, but it's a call to the whole church, all of us here. Now, it is not natural for us to seek a heavenly vision. As I said earlier, we're more inclined to be very earthly in our thinking, right? Practical. Here are, here are, the, here are the brute facts of the situation, and we do our thinking based upon what is concretely right in front of us. I think many discussions in the church on its mission and purpose in the world, take this kind of earthly, this worldly perspective. And so we approach conversations about mission and vision as if the church um, were like a business or an entrepreneurial startup. And so many of our leading questions uh, kind of reveal this, which is questions like, what does it mean for the church to be relevant? What is our value to the community? What is our utility in the world? How can we earn a right or a place at the table, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, we should not pay attention to the needs of the world or understand our context and that we're ministering in, 
But this is a very problematic way, a very problematic way to approach um, mission and vision. Because when we ask these kinds of questions, what ends up happening is we shape our identity and relationship to the world and what we perceive the world to want rather than in relationship to the heavenly Christ. And when the world becomes, or rather when the church becomes worldly and earthly, um, what the end product of this almost always is, is that the church or the world continues to reject the church. Because when we become like the world, I mean, what, is, <laughs> what do we have to offer the world? Nothing that the world doesn't already have and can do better. Now, if anyone had a reason to despair, if anyone had a reason to, to be discouraged by hostility towards his message and difficulty, it was Paul, right? He experienced incredible hardship and suffering for the sake of his ministry. And in fact, Jesus tells him this. He tells, uh, tells Ananias this in, in Luke 9. Jesus says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And the way that Paul's story ends, we know this not from Acts, but eventually Paul makes his way all the way to Rome, and he has a hearing before the Caesar. And the Caesar at this time is Nero, who is, who is a vicious, murderous uh, Caesar. And most likely the story is that Paul was killed by Nero um, as a representative of the Christian faith. That's how Paul's story ends. And yet Paul never um, despaired of his ministry. He never despaired of the church. He was obedient. He was obedient to the heavenly vision. And it always gave his life clear purpose, his sense of the church, clear purpose and mission. Now, I, I think what sets, sets us apart or sets apart having a heavenly orientation rather than an earthly orientation is that we understand that sustaining a vision, sustaining a vision um, as a church depends on a very deep personal experience with God. The task of imagination, uh, the task of vision is calls us to an encounter with the living God, with the living Christ. Sometimes when we hear this word theological vision, we just think in terms of theology, right? Having the right theology. If we have the right theology, then everything follows. Now, to be sure, if you have the wrong theology, you're not going anywhere. You need the right theology. That's really important. But Paul's theological vision wasn't simply uh, understood in terms of the doctrine he taught. Paul's theological vision wasn't a philosophy of ministry or a methodology. It was an encounter with the living Christ, but it wasn't just like a one-time thing. It was a continuing encounter with the living Christ. And this penetrated the deep aspects of his personality, his inner life, and who he was. He underwent a, a conversion, a transformation that changed everything. Now, the reality is that we cannot manufacture or engineer a vision of the heavenly Christ. We shouldn't try to do that. But the most important thing that we can do as a church that leads to heavenly vision is worship. We worship. We commit ourselves to a life of regular worship. Worship is the only way that we can gain a heavenly vision. It's one of the central obligations of the church in the world. 
And when we worship, when we worship properly, with a sense that God is God and there's mystery and there's holiness, and our worship is set apart and it's according to the scriptures, there's a way that we experience the vision and the glory of God, and this fuels our mission. It gives us the perspective we need in order to to be the church that God calls us to be. But when worship dries up in our lives, when we neglect worship in our lives, we end up becoming both worldly and earthly, and vision dries up. So that's the first point. It's the longest point. The other ones are shorter, to be sure. The first point is that to be a church with theological vision, we have to behold the glory of the heavenly Christ. The second point. The second point is that we must embrace the church as the body of Christ. To embrace the church as the body of Christ is to view the local church as uniquely set apart, holy, and precious to Jesus. Precious in Jesus' eyes. The church is God's special object of love and devotion. And so it should be for us the same. Now this is a very hard thing for us. We, we live in an age which is deeply suspicious of institutions. We're very anti-institutional. Um, we're cynical. And that's say nothing of the church and, you know, the long public record of many misdeeds and moral failures. But I think it's more than just our suspicion towards the church or um, our negative attitudes toward the church are more than simply because the church has failed in all these really public ways and we shouldn't trust the church. I'm not sure the church is any more uh, uh, fallible or corrupt today than it has been at any time in history. And even when you look back into the New Testament, you look in, the, in Acts even, and in the letters of Paul, you see a church that is still fallible and corrupted and, and, and imperfect. But there is, a, I think, a way in our own moment today we all participate in a culture that is deeply individualistic. And we always see institutions as a kind of threat to our freedom, as a kind of restrictive thing. And that they're good uh, as long as they serve our own personal vision or help us get ahead in life as we see. We're very sort of cynical towards the church. And I can say this from having pastored for over 10 years now that I find that some of the people who are the most anti-institutional and negative and cynical towards the church are people leading the church or people in the church. And yet, we will never be a church of theological vision if we don't learn to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. And how does he see us? He sees us as his body, whom he loves. Arguably the greatest heresy of the American church today is the belief that you can love Jesus and not love his church. That you can be all right with Jesus and not be all right with his church. Or even to dislike and hate his church. That somehow you can have Jesus without his church. This is a heresy, um, and it is widespread and growing. Paul's testimony in Acts and his letters calls us to embrace the church as the body of Christ. Look again at our text um, in verse 14. Paul, Jesus in, confronts Paul, and he says, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, what's curious here is that Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you doing this to these people that follow me and believe in me? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? (laughs) You're, You're persecuting me. Jesus, here in this passage, there is a direct identity between the heavenly Lord and his earthly body. And I think that actually, you know, Paul's, Paul's the apostle. It's only in Paul that we get this language of the body of Christ. And I, I suspect that perhaps this vision is a big part of Paul using that language. Because there's a sense in which what happens to the body on earth happens to, the, to Christ the head in heaven. There's an identity there. Even though Christ is in heaven and he's physically separated from his people, nevertheless, through the presence of his spirit, he is intimately connected. And again, this is behind Jesus' own teachings in um, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 15. There's this scene of the final judgment when all humanity comes before the Lord and um, he says to the faithful, you know, I was thirsty and you gave me water. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was poor and you, you gave me shelter. And they say, well, when did we do this to you, Lord? He says, in as much as you did to them, you did to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Again, Jesus is identifying his very life with the body, which should scare you a little bit and, and cause you a, a bit of awe in your relationship to the church. Jesus is saying this, the good things you do to the church, to the body, you do to me. And the bad things you do to the church and to the body, you do to me. How we relate to the members of the body is how we relate to Jesus. When we neglect the body, when we ignore the body, in essence what we're doing is we are neglecting Jesus, we are ignoring Jesus. When we talk bad about the body, when we mistreat the members of the body, when we hold with suspicion or even anger and hatred people in the body, we are doing this to Jesus. But the reverse is also true. When you care for one another, when you love, when you're there, when you're present, what you're doing without realizing it is that you're ministering to Jesus. Do you love the church? Do you love and relate to the body as if it were Jesus himself? Friends, being a church with theological vision means seeing ourselves as Jesus sees us. And how does he see us? As his body. And he loves his body. He loves his body. And this means that we must love and embrace the body, which is those around you. Look around. (laughs) When you love one another, you're loving Jesus. Okay, so the first point. of having theological vision as we behold the glory of the heavenly Christ. The second is that we embrace the church as his body. And the third is that we proclaim the message of salvation. We proclaim the message of salvation to ourselves and to the world. Now, perhaps the greatest threat to theological vision in the church is when the church loses confidence in its central message that the Lord has given it. And that central message is the gospel, the good news of salvation. Uh, Jesus 
himself gives us a little bit of that gospel in, his, in the speech that Paul reports to us. He says, I have appeared to you, this is Jesus speaking, that Paul is reporting, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen in me. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then Paul goes on later and he concludes and he gives his own presentation of the gospel. He says, I stand here testifying to both great and small, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would say would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. The Christ must suffer and by that, being the first to rise from the dead, that he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. That he was raised from the dead for your salvation. That by faith in Jesus, we receive forgiveness, the promise of eternal life and resurrection, and a place in his precious body. That is the gospel. And this is a message when it is properly taught and understood um, is scandalous and offensive in every culture and every age. When we really truly teach this, many will just shake their heads that this is nonsense, this doesn't make sense. And if I were to keep reading the story uh, after this, actually that's what happens precisely as Paul is concluding, he's interrupted by the governor that is there, Festus. And Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You're out of your mind. Your great learning and is driving you out of your mind. And Paul is just calm. He says this. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true. I'm speaking true and rational words. See, Festus in the watching world um, regards Paul's message as madness right? As madness. But Paul knows, he knows because of the heavenly vision, because of his deep faith, that actually the words he's speaking are true and rational. A church of theological vision understands and believes that the words of the gospel are true and rational because they address the greatest need of the human condition. And they have the answer, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most important task for us as a church is to recover, and our recovery of theological vision is to learn to undomesticate the gospel in our lives, right? I mean, sometimes the gospel message just becomes so well-worn, right, so familiar to us that we just take it for granted. We're no longer amazed by it. We're no longer awed by it. We're no longer moved by it. And in fact, we can even kind of see the gospel and the basics of the gospel as a kind of a rudimentary things that, yes, we need to learn as children or young Christians, but that we move on to greater and higher and deeper things. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. I, I love Keller's little phrase. He says that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith, but the A to Z. It's not the ABCs, but it's the A to Z. We never get over the gospel. You never graduate the world has not outgrown its need to hear the gospel. And neither have you, because you have not stopped being a sinner. We need the gospel every day of our life because we sin every day of our life. And the good news of the gospel is this, that the offer of forgiveness is not 
just a one-time event. You take it, your past is you know, expunged, you've got a clean record, now go and do the right thing. No. The gospel of forgiveness is not a one-time event, it is a duration. Throughout our whole lives, the gift of forgiveness and justification is something that continues through your whole life as a gift. This, friends, should amaze us and it should delight us and it should give us vision for the steadfast love and the mercy of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would amaze us with the gospel, that those things that for many of us we've heard for countless years of our life it would be alive with fresh insight and emotional uh, weight. Lord, I do pray for a vision of your glory for all of us and a deep sense of how being connected to your body is to be connected to you. We thank you for your life, for your forgiveness, and we ask you to teach us to be a church of true theological vision. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.